the Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. I'm Father Creighton McElveen. I'm Father Hayden Butler. And today we are thrilled to have on Dr. Alex Fogelman. Dr. Fogelman is an, is an assistant research professor at Baylor University and the founding director at, Catechis, at the Catechesis Institute. Uh, Dr. Fogelman, we're thrilled to have you on. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Excellent. So before we jump in, we're gonna we're here to talk about your book, Knowledge, Faith, and Early Christian Initiation. But before we jump in, I was wondering if you could maybe tell our listeners about the work that you do at the Catechesis Institute. What is it? What kind of projects do you all do? Stuff like that. Absolutely. Uh, it is a research and teaching center. Uh, it's and it's designed with those two foci in mind. It's, it's uh, intended to be a place where uh, we can do good research, uh, rigorous research uh, from historical, theological, and other, other perspectives on uh, the institutions of catechesis, uh, what it is, uh, and how to teach well, um, but with the aim of it being implemented in the local church. Uh, so it's a way to kind of bridge uh, so the research world and, and the, the ecclesial world um, to help ultimately build up uh, churches as as catechetical cultures, as I call them, you know, finding ways to help churches become places out of which can can exert this energy of of, of rich theological education and, and spiritual formation. So it emerged somewhat uh, just organically out of my own uh, ex experience uh, within the church, within the Anglican Church in particular. Um, but also I, there's a lot of resonances across traditions. So the Institute itself is, uh, is ec ecumenical. It's not specifically tied to, to the Anglicans, but that tends to be a lot of who, who we work with. Um, but uh, it's, a, again, it's intended to be this place where we can bring together good, good research um, and, and as well, but think about what does this mean for the church and how can we um, reconstitute our churches as, as these rich sites of formation. That's excellent. And so if listeners want to kind of follow the Institute a little more, or get see a little more about it, where can they do that? Yes. Yeah, so um, most of ours, as our, our stuff is on our website at catechesisrenewal.com. Uh, that's the, and um, the best way to kind of stay in touch is through our monthly newsletter, email newsletter. So sign up. Signing up for that is the best way to kind of keep in touch with us. We do semi-regular events, um, uh, virtual and in-person, and we do them kind of in partnerships with other places, other churches, other other institutions. But um, so we do a different set of in-person events to kind of help host, help churches think about this. But um, we're so far, we're um, not on, on any kind of social media. So uh uh, it's it's just our website and, and the newsletter is the is the best way to stay up with us. Maybe there's something catechetical about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's an elegant segue actually into uh, as we as we kind of jump into our uh, some questions that, that that you know about your book because it, it was a like Father West said it's a really fun read um, and uh, and definitely I think especially um, you know Father West and I have. Um, uh, you know, kind of long backgrounds in in being classroom teachers as well as um, as well as clergy, and so the 
you know, how people come to know things is, is, is always a matter of um, interest, both in a practical and a theoretical sense. But um, I, I question that, you know, to start us off uh, today, one, one of the questions that I had um, that, you know, as, as Anglo-Catholics, we often kind of get the, um, the stereotype of, of being um, fussy about ritual. Um, and, uh, and, but, you know, I think that part of our, our spiritual tradition is to think deeply and carefully about uh, ritual and the role it plays in Christian formation. Um, and that's one thing I wanted to kind of get your uh, input on, um, per, uh, particularly in catechesis. Uh, Could you help us understand better how you see the role of ritual um, coming to bear in catechesis, and particularly um, in the way that ritual forms how we know things and not just what we know? Absolutely. That's that's really uh, a great question. Um, and it it gets into this very close connection that uh, the book is interested in with the relationship between initiation as a as a process as a as a ritual as a thing that is done to us as well as this emphasis on catechesis as a um, something that surrounds that leads up to that i i the way i define catechesis is this I take this term from from another scholar, Benjamin Edsall, who calls it peri-baptismal yeah. instruction, meaning it's around, it's both pre-baptismal and you know, catechesis and post-baptismal mystagogy. We're all I'm including all of that in this in this category. But so you have the ritual, the thing itself. This is, you know, um, when someone's sworn into office, you know, they become the president at a certain time, a certain moment, it's done in the act of, of the ritual. Um, and yet it, it needs to be accompanied, surrounded. We have a whole set of, of, of ideas, images, narratives that surround that initiation, that ritual. Um, and so I, I think it becomes clear that, that while the ritual is, is enacting, performing and doing the thing it is where it is, it's the empowering of the holy spirit it's becoming incorporated into the body of christ um and yet my sense is what the early church does really well is is hold both the initiation and the catechesis closely together um in ways that i think in today we've somewhat lost touch with this this tight connection and that was one of the things I, I i i wanted to explore but today you know you have the kind of the the liturgical advocates and they say it's all in the liturgy it's it's in the the, the formation that happens in, in the liturgy uh and you don't you don't want to say yes absolutely um but that's also accompanied by um this rich set of of instructional habits and practices um, and so seeing how those work together and interweave helps us from being the sort of anti-liturgical, uh, you know, this kind of, it's all about teaching, but then you're, you know, you're conscripted into this counter ritual of, you know, whatever it is, the American way of life. Yeah. But if you have just liturgy with no catechesis, uh, I think you can, again, you can have a beautiful initiation ritual and have a beautiful liturgy but it's it's not um, there's no there's no um, it can be again another kind of instruction another kind of teaching becomes accompanied to that so I, I think that's it's it's what um, 
comes out, where one of the things that comes out in this in a study of early Christian patristic catechesis is this tight connection between ritual and instruction that that helps us see that um, yes, the, the ritual is doing something. There is something that powerful that happens in the ritual, but it does so, I think, because it's attended by this larger set of habits, uh, social structures, uh, these, these, this larger set of connections that happen both to the mind and to the body. Um, so all of that happens in this tight connection between catechesis and ritual. I really appreciated that term that you just used a para baptismal mm -hmm. because um, I, I think on the, on the ground, some of the debate that you rehash between, or not really direct debate, but like the attitudes towards baptism of Tertullian versus Augustine at the very beginning. And Tertullian kind of wants people to wait until they've been thoroughly catechized before they're baptized. And Augustine is like, no, you got to get baptized as soon as possible. But I think in many ways, this is the reality on the ground that a, that a priest has to deal with, that there are, especially where we are, I think after a sort of realignment of churches where it's like, I have people in my parish who have been going to Anglican or Episcopalian churches since the day they were born, and they have a ton of bad habits that have to be unlearned and new things that have to be taught. And I also have a number of young, new people who have never been a Christian. And so that that catechesis, and, and so we're doing all that at once. And um, so kind of both poles are there in the par in parish life day to day. So we can learn a little bit of from both of those approaches, I think. I think it, I think it's interesting too that the the sort of engagement you get liturgically that formation that does take place paired with the formation that takes place uh, as a student as somebody who's learning and investing and and um, and and really sort of practicing your faith like that that comes out liturgically but it also comes out in the kind of um, pedagogical modes in the church where we learn together we pray together we do all these things together it engages i think uh, in a really human way it's a it's a very um embodied sort of method um which sort of leads us to to kind of the next question where you know we we hear things like uh the visio divina as popular and prominent and sort of that pop pastoral conversation and I was wondering if you could provide some sort of historically informed advice for our listeners who are trying to train their senses uh, in, in sort of a similar mode that we see with Ambrose's uh, catechetical method. Yeah, Ambrose is, is super interesting on this. Um, and um, yeah, so he, he probably gives us, at least in the, in the Latin tradition, some of the more deliberate accounts of this training of of the senses um and he does so fairly um straightforwardly there's been some really good studies about ambrose and mystagogy specifically i just do i just have one chapter on ambrose but there's some, some really fascinating work on ambrose and mystagogy and as well that comes out of a whole there's a whole recent sort of um interest in this idea of the spiritual senses um, in, in Christianity, but also in sort of other contexts, especially those that have some indebtedness to Platonist traditions. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, what it means, there, there's all sorts of pronouncements in scripture about seeing God. Mm -hmm. um, 
and yet if, if God is spiritual, uh, as John Ford puts it, then what, what would that possibly mean? God is invisible. What does it mean to see God? And so there's lots of, um, you know, you get <clears throat> reflection on this in a more theoretical key in, in, in several patristic writers. But Ambrose is one in which you see in his, what's called his mystagogical homilies. Uh, with Ambrose, you get somebody actually doing it. You get actually somebody who is training the senses. So I, so I see Ambrose as somebody who is kind of an exemplar. Like if we want to model ourselves to a mystagogue, uh, we could do much worse than following Ambrose, tracking with Ambrose and seeing what he does. Um, and I should say, I also um, trace this earlier. There's, it's hard to kind of figure out what Ambrose is, who his sermons are, are directed to. But I do think there's a whole host of, of pre-baptismal or some Lenten uh, catechetical writings that he has that are attempting to habituate new believers into the habits and, and virtues, the moral life of the Christian church. And he's also training them to think about um, their upcoming baptism as a kind of death. Um, there's this whole sort of stoic literature about whether death is a good thing, you know. And so Ambrose takes up some of this and incorporates it into a specifically Christian baptismal context, um, which does different things about, you know, philosophy as a training for death. Um, and then, so then by the time he's got, he's gotten uh, to the, to the mystagogical homilies, which are um, homilies given to those who have just been baptized. So the week after uh, they've been baptized, he, he, he teaches a series of homilies and they're all on the sacraments, what we call the sacraments of, of initiation. Um, and he walks back through them. He calls upon their memory and he re-narrates their baptism that they've experienced. Um, they, they likely may have never even seen or been a part of a baptism before. Because um, in, in the early church, oftentimes the non-baptized are asked to leave right after the sermon. Um, so they may have never even seen a baptism before. And there they are. They're, they're going through this, this process, this ritual. that's very similar to uh, some of the ways that uh, you know, Anglican, more liturgical traditions you know, baptize today. But um, they uh, then he explains. He uh, expounds, exposits. He goes back and says, "Remember, you walked in the room. Uh, you saw the priest. You, he, he, um, you know, he he touched he, your ears, right? And you and they were and they were open. So he walks them back through. He sort of re-narrates their initiation, but then he sort of peels back the layers. So there's this experience where they've experienced it, and Ambrose is now." Um, guiding them, and it's and it's all very biblical. I mean, everything he points to, every sort of, every stage of the baptismal and, and Eucharistic ritual, he exposits in this, uh, what we call allegorical or figural way. So he helps them, and, it, and this is especially interesting when he talks about you know, the material elements. Um, what, you, you saw the water. Is it just water? Is that all? He gives them these kinds of questions. He narrates their their questions, their potential doubts. Is that all I'm seeing here? And then he trains them how to see this biblically 
and liturgically. So it's a, it's a very fascinating way of of getting at this training of the spiritual senses. That it's it's there's the premise here would be something that like that you know this isn't just a um, you know a light switch. It's out on and off. But the, the very idea that our perception of of the world, of the Christian rites, of the scriptures, that this is something that that requires some kind of training, some kind of habituation, some kind of formation in, and that it comes in the uh, with, with the help of of wise guides like Ambrose. Uh, so there's uh, there's some really interesting. Um, Set uh, there's a whole research group on this training the spiritual senses. Um, so Paul Gavriuk, who's a who's a theologian at University of Saint Thomas, um, Sarah Coakley, um, uh, Frederick Aquino. Uh, there's this group that's done this really interesting interdisciplinary study of theology and philosophy, especially about how we see things. Um, so I, I, you know, Boyd Kuhlman, who I know you guys admire you know he's been a part of these groups because the whole the whole medieval the victorines they're all about this they really pick up this this kind of affective sensory pedagogy um and, and they're also very attuned to the way that again it's not just a cool idea it's something that that christians are actually formed in and trained in and it, and it trains not only the way they see the the liturgy the rituals but the way they see you know the, the whole created world so that's actually a really good, I think, segue into another question that we had, which is that when we think about conversion, there's often a kind of trading a set of one ideas for another. That's how many people conceive of it. I no longer think that way about the Eucharist. I think this way about the Eucharist. And that's certainly true. Um, and, and of course, once the convert makes the move, they then have to convince everyone around them to also make that same move. Um, but you you do some work with Peter Christologist and the, the idea of familial participation and the ontological change of the Christian. So could you help our readers understand, or our listeners understand a little bit more about why conversion is more than just the exchange of one set of ideas for another and why it's about remaking the whole person? Yeah, that's great. That was... Um, I really enjoy that. There's a, the section on Peter Chrysologus. So he's around the time of Ambrose. He's late fourth century. Um, or he's, he's a little bit after uh, these guys. He's writing in around 430 or so. So he's a little bit later. And um, I argue in this section that he um, understands, even you can see it in the different ways that he talks about the creed and the Lord's Prayer. So those are the kind of part of the main things that he talks about in catechesis and that the what you see in his instructions on the creed is this uh, distancing the separation between um, non-christian and christian ways of knowing and so he expresses this and i this it's a more apophatic register he's he's distancing um you know even even kind of distance faith and reason you know he kind of has this almost fideistic kind of language as for what you thought you know you don't know you don't <laughs> um so it's a strongly sort of apophatic move but then what he does in in the lord's prayer sermons he has several homilies on these for for catechumens um this 
language of deification and our uh, the Christian's sonship, becoming sons in the Son, uh, takes begins to take center stage. So this kind of rupture that he's created in our ways of knowing that he first does, he then heals and reorders, reconstitutes through this rich theology of deification that comes through specifically on the Lord's Prayer. Um, and, and for most all early Christians, um, especially by the fourth century, you have a pretty standard, most everybody teaches the creed in the Lord's Prayer, um, you know, but um, so what he, and they teach that in that order, and they all kind of reflect on this in different ways. Um, but he's very clear that you know, the, your, um, that the creed um, kind of gives you the template for the, the, the faith in which you stand. But then the Lord's prayer is kind of the, the enacting of that sonship. This is when you become, you go from being declared uh, a son or daughter of God to becoming a son of God, right? Um, and so it's precisely in this language of, of the Lord's Prayer. You're calling upon our Father, and only one who's in the Son can call upon God as as our Father. Um, so, so this is um, to your to your question about this isn't just a uh, a set of new ideas. Um, a set of new propositions to which I now subscribe. Um, he's talking about a um, a transformation of our our human nature. This is he puts this in the register more of an ontological transformation rather than uh, strictly uh, a set of new ideas, as he put it. And so that gives us not only a new um, it does give us new ideas like that, um, you know, we think about the world in different ways, our cognitive processes operate in a different way, but they do so um, out of a changed anthropology, out of a changed um, being. Uh, and so there's this, that becomes the premise of this set of new ways of thinking about the world. It's premised on this, um, you are now not part of the family, you are now part of the family. Uh, so it's a familial change. It's it's an adoption, um, and yet he also, uh, you know, puts this in, in that more ontological language. There's a a transferal of, of nature, so to speak. And it's clear that we don't become gods in the same way that that Christ is God. Uh, he he has all the, the qualifications to anticipate all the Protestant worries about that, but uh, he is uh, it's very none that nevertheless he's very strong on, on this sort of ontological uh, transformation that occurs in baptism. Don't worry, they turned the podcast off a long time ago. <laughs> no, I think that's really helpful because I, I it's been an emphasis I've been trying to bring to our parish life, uh, especially uh, this coming calendar year of like, yeah, we should have newcomers class and we should have, you know, different scenarios in which you're being taught what's true but let's also live into the calendar a little more and let's find sort of ways that we can transform together that aren't just me lecturing you about some topic you know but actually live it and i do think that brings an added dimension to to this that it's easier to enact because you're actually living it out i mean it's the whole purpose of liturgy really is is that yeah. that playing out or the drama of it all 
And the other thing that, that I should add to that uh, is that there's a whole um, understanding of, uh, of angels and demons that the church fathers have in view when they're thinking about conversion that is we're not quite aware of. When we think about conversion today uh, in a kind of you know, broadly Christian North American context, you know, we think about, you know, switching over from the Baptist church to the Methodist church, you know, and like that doesn't require this, uh, uh, that's not an ontological transformation that this, but, uh, you know, so we, when, when that's our sort of uh, cultural context for how we think about conversion, then it's going to, it is going to undercut the, what we're trying to do in catechesis, which is, um, understand this this actually quite radical transformation uh, of oneself. Uh, and so uh, the other part of this, this ontological transformation is that the the fathers, um, and, I, and I think they're right on this, they're, they're actually quite clear that those who don't belong to Christ do share, like as Paul puts it, you participate in idols, you participate, you share, you have koinonia with demons. Um, and it's it's not our North American way of putting it, but I, you know, the, for the fathers, that's that's absolutely central. And so, what's happening in this um, conversion, this initiation, is that there is a a total transfer of spiritual allegiance. So it puts us very much more into the Pauline, the New Testament world of of how our uh, you know, our actions, our physical uh, liturgies and rituals are actually a part of a much larger spiritual world um, it, without it being weird, just kind of like you know, weird stuff. I don't know. I don't know how better to say that, but there's actually a real rich you know, theology of participation there. Um, but it, it does, it, their theology does account for sort of demonology in a ways that, that we're kind of like, uh, that's, that's for the more backwoods people that we, you know, it's weird Christianity, not the more mature, sophisticated, elite Christianity that, uh, you know, good Anglicans subscribe to. I like the idea, though, of, of, of a sort of new mode of being, right? That it's like, it's not simply that you have a new pattern of existence, although you do, you now have new liturgies you participate in, you have new ways of uh, engaging in worship and all those sorts of things. But because there's been this substantial substantive change that you are brought into, uh, you know, a new experience and that all, all of the bits and bobs of your life, and, you know, including what you thought about things, um, everything has changed. It's really uh, a stronger and a deeper sense of what that word conversion means, right? And using that Pauline language of, of metanoia, of turning and really kind of um, leaning into uh, how, how in a good way, radical that baptismal identity is. Yeah, that's right. It, it is a new, um, it is a, a, a total, uh, transformation or and and there's been lots of um you know the more historical side of scholarship has been um you know the sort of 
wanting to retell the story of conversion. They say, oh, not every conversion is like St. Paul and, and St. Augustine. You know, it's not this dramatical spiritual experience. Most people probably just converted in mass and, and they didn't really know what they were they were getting into. Um, and so that's the, the more kind of secular historical view of of conversion in, in antiquity would say, well, that's just what the, um, you know, a few people latch on to this kind of dramatic idea, but, um, and I didn't make this point explicit in, in a book, um, but I think catechesis is one way you would look at, well, somebody thinks that these ideas have purchase. Like, <laughs> this isn't just, you know, pastors who have this really spiritual idea of conversion, <laughs> trying to put it on the people and, and get them excited about what they're getting into. It's like, this, when we look at this, and it's a, a pretty wide range of texts, you see this, uh, that this this more ontological conception of, of conversion, uh, new ways of understanding the, the world itself, cosmology, time, you know, all this stuff, uh, is is deeply embedded into the way that that they're understanding the process of conversion. That's a, there's a that, that actually raises a, a question that I was having as I was as I was reading is um, you you really draw that out well and it, and it seems like um, as we focus on this point of conversion. Um, you know, we we there, we look at that point, and there's a lot of imitative practice of of, of like a telling my story, like a Saint Paul on the Damascus Road, or a Saint Augustine who has this pick up and read, you know, moment, um, and looking at that as a kind of template for uh, you know narrating the experience of, con of conversion. Um, but it's it's to Augustine that that I think you know that that I was drawn in your chapter on him. Uh, you. you you spent time with a section of, of his thought that I think maybe gets omitted um, too often, which is his, um, you know, you get done reading the, the kind of biographical bits of the confessions, and then you have this long section on memory. Um, and, and it seems like, you know, you know, kind of in line with your, your comments on Ambrose's mystagogical sermons, uh, there's this way we come to understand the meaning of that point of conversion. You know, he narrates the baptismal rite and the, and the first Eucharistic participation and what's really happening under the surface there. But it seems like um, part of conversion and, cate and, and peri, uh, you know, baptismal catechesis is that we then go on to understand what the, the real nature of our life was prior to conversion and really what the circumstances of our conversion were, what we thought they were at the time, and then what we would say they were maybe 10 years later as practicing Christians. And so a question that I, I was hoping maybe you could comment on is, can you help us understand uh, the the role of memory um, in uh, in Saint Augustine's idea of catechesis and how that um, might speak to a modern Christian context where we often don't put a very high um, priority on remembering, um, and it's a lot more about the the kind of the the present or even extrapolating into the future. But a lot of times, what what we have been and the meaning of what we have been is sometimes um, goes to the wayside. Yeah, I think uh, that's that's great. I love Augustine on memory, and and I, I think it is um, such an important part. It's something that he returns to throughout his career, um, and he and it's often a, a puzzle uh, in some ways. I mean, it gets it's deeper into the epistemological woods than than I go. I just kind of touch on this, but there's there's lots of um, really good work. Uh, on Augustine and memory. Um, and uh, let's see, where to, 
where to start. Um, yeah, in some ways, I think you could think of conf I mean, of confessions as you know a catechumen's tale. Uh, he, he, in fact, is a catechumen for most of the confessions, right? He's narrating his life, uh, but most of this, this what he's narrating, he's actually a catechumen, and and you notice he's very reticent about, you know, Eucharistic or baptismal theology, and. And, and some people have made this this argument, um, but then, uh, what's I think what's interesting about that is that that then becomes a template for the Christian life itself, right? He's writing this is uh, is is pretty well documented now. This isn't just his like autobiography. He's not just interested in telling people about himself or the because he needs a, a platform to express his feelings. Um, but this is actually a theological and pedagogical text uh, that's meant to um, uh, to uh, to affect us, right? At, at every turn, he's you know asking us to uh, you know think about how we're responding to the text, you know, um, and and so memory plays an explicit role in Confessions ten when he talks about the 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 vast palace of memory, the vast field or um, uh, cavern. I can't remember the metaphor, what, what, he, what he says there, but uh, this, this infinite place and, and how slippery it is. And he's, he's all about trying to get at, you know, where is God? Where is God? Do I just, uh, you know, how do I learn God if I've never known God before, right? So he's getting at, these are all questions about conversion and, and the encounter with God. And it comes in, um, in that sort of dramatic. He gets about to the end of where he can go with memory. And it, he keeps trying and it keeps failing. Um, and then he goes to this really you know, profound moment of, and it's all described in the spiritual senses language to bring that back in. God spoke, he shouted and shattered my deafness. Right? And he goes through each of the five senses and talks about how God breaks in um and, and encounters us uh in, in this way that we that we just couldn't couldn't have expected um so uh so for him um conversion and memory are tied together you know we 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 simply are uh, our memories you know in, in a most basic sense i think he can share that with a lot of other um early christian and non-christian authors like the, the memory is the foundation of who we are and and this carries on into to Aquinas and uh, and later authors as well. You know, memory is the first rule of prudence. You can't know how to act wisely or justly if you don't have uh, a memory upon which to to base that on. What I also started to notice in some of these uh, catechetical texts, especially when they're talking about the creed. Um, they talk about the creed, you know, they say all the time, you know, don't write this down, but write it in your heart. You know, this becomes a trope. And part of that is that you're not supposed to let the outsiders, the non-baptized, know what the creed is. It's, it's reserved only for the baptized. This is called the discipline of secrecy. Um, and it's, it's again, it's, it's a common trope through the third, fourth century. But it, it, there's there's lots of interesting things about that. But what, uh, what struck me about this was that they have, there's this sense that 
thing, writing the creed in the heart, the inscription of the creed in the heart, isn't just a, a nice metaphor. This is um, writing God's covenant with us. Um, that becomes our memory. That becomes the foundation of the Christian memory. And it's a memory that we share with the body of Christ. It's a common deposit of faith. But um, there's a way in which they think about the inscription of the creed as the as the rewriting, uh, the refounding of the Christian memory, and that becomes uh, the basis upon which you you build a life, you, which everything else gets gets built upon. Um, and so uh, the the memory stuff I think was absolutely fascinating with this uh, early Christian catechesis. It really becomes. I've also been absolutely fascinated with memory. As well, just you know, as a as a people who are increasingly forgetful, and we, you know, uh, we download our all of our stuff out of ourselves and, and onto our computers and stuff and and all that. Um, and and the and so, what what could I the the question for for you guys for uh, the working priests and and pastors and shepherds is to, um, you know, how do we then rebuild the memory. Um, and this is, I think you could think here of, of Alistair McIntyre's kind of doing uh, ethics or virtue, you know, or, or trying to do ethics after virtue, right? We're just, uh, so much of it is just picking up fragments and pieces, but um, there's, there's a place in which it, it's got to start somewhere. And I, I'm, I think it starts with catechesis as this place where the foundations and, and really the foundations of our, our memory uh, start to get rebuilt. It's it's interesting, you know. I think about our baptismal rite, and uh, you know, there's a portion uh, in the vows um, that you know, for example, if a parent set of parents and godparents bring an infant to the baptismal font, um, one of the things they vow is, you know, will you on your part take heed that this child learn the creed, the Lord's prayer, the Ten Commandments, and all other things a Christian ought to know and believe to his soul's health. Um, and it's interesting thinking about that vow in light of what you just said of that this is that the you know because there's one sense you could take that of like you know are they learning their their church stuff or right are they doing their sunday school lessons but i think considering that like the found the refounding of of the memory and the identity of a person of okay the new um the new kind of schematic for your life are these things these things that you commit to yourself right the creed the lord's prayer the ten commandments one thing i like about the prayer book catechism in the in the 28 prayer book is that you know all the great christian traditions have their catechisms like what's the purpose of man and all this and ours is what's your name but that's exactly what it does is it's saying yeah. hey your identity is so intricately shaped by this moment in time that we're asking what's your name that's right and who are your godparents you know or <laughs> who you know it's the this very particular context that who who are you you know yeah that's good I think it's interesting, too, in relation to memory, that as the individual grows um, in the faith, as they as they kind of progress, say, if they're baptized as an infant, as they progress in, in the life of faith, one of the aspects that's recovered in terms of memory is, we could call it an institutional memory, but the kind of memory of the church. Sure. We learn about, uh, like, our godparents and our parents, those are our, our parents in faith. Um, they're the ones who are teaching us that we're immediately seeing as examples. But then we're also taught about the saints and the great uh, 
you know, men and women of church history who are there in our lineage, that is a common memory that we share. Um, and that liturgy is a common, again, focal point. And this catechesis that we're engaging in is, you know, however old we are, whatever, whatever we're doing, that's a common focal point. Everyone had to learn the creed at some point. That's right. Yeah. And, and I think that's right. I mean, many of us, um, our, our memories are so profoundly shaped by our, uh, for many of us, our family uh, and the people that are, are in our lives. And, and, and it comes out in all sorts of ways. Like I, I'm realizing this as a, as a person in my, in my late thirties now, and there's so many things that I do now uh, that I'm like, ah, that's, that's my dad. <laughs> that's my uncle. Yeah. <laughs> Like I, I see all of all of these these kind of strange ticks and patterns and stuff. And um, but for so many of us, it's it, it's our it's our immediate family, um, whether we want to or not. You know, they um, are the the memory here broadly conceived includes the the memory of, of that family. And so, yeah, I I think that's absolutely right. What the um, what church catechesis does is um, help us meet new family members um, and point to those, especially the saints and the martyrs that um, that show us who we are. Um, they don't just, it's not a kind of um, exemplarism that just says, you know, look at that martyr, look how much more he suffered than you are. So, you know, you can give up that, that bowl of cereal this morning. You know, it's like these, it, the idea is more, um, I think in that sort of family genealogy metaphor, like these are these are your family. Like this is this is the family you've been born into, born anew into, um, and then it, it that ten, that then becomes our new family memory. Yeah. So, uh, kind of moving to our, our our final question, sort of drawing generally from your research, uh, how would you say that prayer? sort of impacts catechesis and education. Yeah, and I think that should be um, at the heart of it. Um, I think um, prayer shapes, um, it gives us, um, gives us voice, gives us, um, you know, in a very real way, gives us a sense of of agency, of action, uh, in a in a very real way, um, and in some ways, um, that what we see in baptism is 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 a new initiation into into learning to speak. Um, there's another uh, another recent book by one of our uh, Catechesis Institute fellows um, called "Sensing the Sacred" by Hannah Lucas. Um, it's, it's an exceptional book. She deals more with the mystagogues, the fourth century mystagogy, and she also, she's really um, good, I think, on this question about, you know, the different senses, um, hearing, sight, um, touch, you know, and it, uh, something she says in there reminded me of this is that, you know, this is what uh, speech is for. You know, she this this sense of what is the, the sort of telos of speech is prayer, um, and it, it's in, in Latin. You know, it's oratio to is both speech and it's prayer, um, 
And so one who is learning to pray in catechesis, learning the Lord's Prayer, they're being given a, a grammar by which they can um, speak truly, uh, to utter a true word, which is to utter, uh, to utter the Our Father. Um, so the, um, and, and apart from that, apart from that, um, we are left, um, you know, mute. <laughs> we are, we're left speechless. Uh, and, and so what, what prayer is, is, is um, what a catechesis of prayer is, is being given language with, which is the, for the very reason that we were given speech, which is to commune with God and to commune uh, with, with uh, our neighbor, to love God and to love neighbor. And so I think of that in terms of that's the very purpose of, of speech. Uh, and so, so prayer is very much at the heart of this catechesis. And again, it gets way beyond the idea of, oh, we just need to learn some new ideas and uh, clean out the, the bad ideas and put in the, the new good ideas. But this is a, uh, this is training us and helping us and giving us speech for the very thing for which we were created. I'm reminded of Thornton, I think Martin Thornton, and um, I think it's Christian proficiency where he taught, he basically says that exact thing that the, the purpose of our theology is to become better at praying. Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. And this is a great uh, Jay, Jay Packer line, you know, all theology is doxology. Uh, it's mm. for doxology. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's hard to uh, think of a better way we could bring that to a close than with that line. Um, so one thing we do at the end of every episode is we talk about something that we're into. Uh, could be anything, experience, movie, book, whatever. So uh, Alex, what are you into these days? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm somewhat embarrassed of this as someone who... You know, uh, I don't have many cool hobbies um, or like, yeah, I, I don't brew beer or anything like that. Um, and um, I don't even have a beard, so I can't even do like, you know, I don't have cool beard things like most good angler. I just look at Father Creighton. <laughs> no, no and one I'm, listening and to I'm proud of it. <laughs> and I'm proud of the fact that I don't have a beard. You too. <laughs> so besides uh you know brewing beer and, and growing a beard i'm um i've been i've been very into puzzles lately and this came about over over advent and we have two older kids that are um like they stay up later now and so we need to you know we want to do things with them uh and so um we my wife really uh, introduced the idea of oh, we should do a, a puzzle together, and then uh, you know we, we often will listen to a book and and things like that. But it's been just a really sweet time, and I think it's also been nice for me as somebody who is more like inclined to just like do something productive or like you know uh, this is it's a great sort of like um, there's I, I accomplished something and nothing uh, at the same time <laughs> and, and uh it's, it's it's been so fun so i'm not like a big I, this is a very new thing and although my uh sort of obsessive tendencies still creep in uh and it's like time for the kids to go to bed and i'm doing like one more piece you know 
Uh, so even even their vices, my vices uh, recur, but um, it's just been a, a, a very enjoyable a little thing in uh, in the Fogelman household of late. Love it. Love it. Father we, Hayden, we love, what you, a, oh. we love a good puzzle. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a puzzle. No, <laughs> That's puzzles right. are awesome. You don't need to be embarrassed about uh, about doing puzzles. I, I won't be anymore. I will I will be free of all embarrassment. <laughs> I should also say, you know, as uh, as good Anglicans, you know, every time we I was we'll talk about the category of mystery. I'll say a mystery is not a puzzle. <laughs> a puzzle can be solved. A mystery cannot be solved. And this go. is God. And this is a puzzle. Is, God is not a puzzle to be solved. Uh, but there's a there's a place for puzzles. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that was the I think that was the title of a. 1990s uh, Newsboys album. You know, <laughs> God is not a puzzle. <laughs> and to your point, Father Creighton, I do. Th I would, you know, encourage you to remember the of the ancient canon law uh, in saying that a clergyman without a beard is is, is prone to be caned across the shins uh, in, in the public square. So uh, just remember that. You know? <laughs> next, next synod. Yeah, next synod. Yeah, we, we're going to have to start enforcing this. Uh, we'll get uh, get our canon law friends on this. Um, but no. Uh, for me, uh, what I'm into lately, uh, other than you know, since our last episode where we were uh, we were exulting in the uh, the glorious ascent of the Cowboys into the playoffs, uh, I, we, as predicted, have uh, experienced the calamitous uh, fallout from that that uh, that hope. Um, at least the Eagles lost too. At least the Eagles lost too. So our, our division rival did. But but you know you know to use an, an apropos metaphor, right? I am I feel like uh, Charlie Brown and 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 the Cowboys are Lucy with the football, and I I just go and I try to <laughs> kick it every single time, and I know what she's going to do, and I and I just I just do it anyway. Um, I'm in this Sisyphean nightmare of of Cowboys fandom, and so um, that's what I've been into lately is you know weeping copiously over that. Um, uh, but then in addition to that, um, I've been, uh, uh, speaking of puzzles, um, Christy and I, we've been uh, working on uh, the New York Times crossword puzzle um, as, a, as a kind of new uh, activity. We were re renewing our interest in that. We used to do crossword puzzles a lot and, uh, and you know, uh, having very young children is inimical to that. Uh, and uh, so we, uh, we've been reviving our interest in our practice of that. That's been a lot of fun uh, to, to connect over that. So yeah, crossword puzzling over here in the Butler house. I uh, should probably go next because mine was also crossword puzzles. <laughs> every every year I buy one of those page a day calendars. And mm -hmm. usually I do a comic like I'll do Dilbert or Pearls Before Swine or I think one year I did Jeopardy. Um, you know, just kind of you go to the Barnes and Noble and whatever is on sale. But this year I did pick up the New York Times crossword puzzle page a day calendar and um, have been very into it. And even alongside it, I've always loved the New York Times crossword puzzle, but um this allows me to actually get into it every day. And even beside the the page a day calendar, they had a pair of New York Times crossword puzzle socks for sale. Ooh. So I bought those too. So I occasionally wear my New York Times crossword puzzle socks. During COVID, my wife and I got really into crossword puzzles. Um, we would every day because we got the local paper to keep up with all the closures and restrictions and stuff. And so I would make a copy of the puzzle and then we would do it. And whoever got it right first, the most amount, Per week, got to pick the movie for Friday night, which was <laughs> nice. sort of that's that was how boring COVID was. <laughs> that was our big thing, but oh, it was really a cool time. So anyway, so but I'm I'm getting back into the crossword puzzle for sure. So good to know, Father Hayden. We should uh, I don't know commiserate about that now that we're it's all we've got left. It's all we've got left. 
and decide who gets to pick the next movie. That's right. <laughs> Father Creighton, what are you into? Crossword puzzles. <laughs> um, I love crossword puzzles, too. I just want to add that. Um, I had my appendix out a couple of years ago, and I was in the hospital for like a week. Um, and one of uh, my wife and I's really good friends, she brought me a stack of newspapers like some were new york times it was just like as many as she could get together because she also loves the crossword puzzle to bring me just as many crosswords you know as i I could take and that's like all i did when i wasn't you know on morphine and sleeping and all that kind of stuff i just wake up into a crossword puzzle and i found one the other day and woo you should not do crossword puzzles on strong painkillers <laughs> I thought I was killing it. I was not. No, I was not. Um, so what? What? Uh, what I'm? What I've been into? It's. I mean, it's a sort of puzzle. The the. It's the same impulse. Um, my wife and I love uh, crime drama, like shows or books or things like that. Um, so you know, big fans of like Inspector Morse or kind of the older options with the newer ones to Wallander, all those kinds of things. Um, and one of our favorites is Shetland and a new season of Shetland came out. Uh, and one of the things we enjoy the most about it is the, all right, who do you, at the end of each episode, you know, who do you think did it? Where, where are you at right now with what's happening? Who's the, what's the, what's the main thing? Who's, who's doing it? Who's, who's, tricking who and we you know we kind of try to guess the end before we get there um and uh yeah we finished we finished up the the new season last night uh had crazy twist so exactly what we were anticipating <laughs> um but it was really great love it love it well, Dr. Frungelman, thank you for so much for coming on. And uh, listeners, the book is Knowledge, Faith, and Early Christian Initiation. If you can find it somewhere, it's definitely worth uh, definitely worth reading. Um, and also, be sure to give us a follow on Facebook and Twitter. Like and subscribe us on YouTube. Be sure to leave us a rating if you can. And you're always welcome to join the communion of Patreon saints for $5 a month over at our Patreon. Father Hayden, would you close us in prayer? Certainly. Let us pray. O Lord, we beseech thee mercifully to receive the prayers of thy people who call upon thee, and grant that they may both perceive and know what things they ought to do, and also may have grace and power faithfully to fulfill the same. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.